Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. We at the History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and the History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join the History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other history fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with the History Guy, looks behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at thehistoryguyguild.locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there. Today, the History Guy tells the story of two special operation raids in World War II. The first war to see extended use of forces trained in specific and unique operations. First, he tells the story of the paratrooper raid on Los Banos, and then he tells the harrowing tale of the raid on Macon Island. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. Some of the Allied airborne operations in Europe during the Second World War are very well remembered and well studied. D-Day, Market Garden, but airborne assaults were far less common and far less well remembered in the Pacific, where only one of America's five airborne divisions was assigned. And yet, an airborne operation, little known, in February of 1945 by the 11th Airborne Division is considered by many to be the most perfect of the war. General Colin Powell, former chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, said of the operation, I doubt that any airborne unit in the world will ever rival the Los Banos prison raid. It is the textbook airborne operation for all ages and all armies. It is history that deserves to be remembered. The 11th Airborne Division was activated on February 25, 1943, with one paratrooper regiment and two glider infantry regiments under the command of Major General Joseph Swing. Swing served as airborne advisor for General Eisenhower during Operation Husky, the Allied invasion of Sicily in the summer of 1943, during which the 82nd Airborne made its first combat drop. Heavy winds scattered the airborne troops, and few of them reached their rally points. The Army wasn't sure that division-sized air units would be practical. General Swing was put in charge of the Swing Board, which, using the 11th Airborne, was meant to answer that question. In December of 1943, the 11th proved their worth in the Knollwood Maneuvers, where they successfully performed a mock operation with the whole division in North Carolina. Army Ground Forces Commander Lieutenant General Leslie McNair attributed the success to better understanding of airborne units since Sicily, and Eisenhower okayed the use of airborne divisions. The 11th was sent to the Pacific in June of 1944 and saw combat with General MacArthur on the island of Leyte, the beginning of the campaign, to liberate the Philippine Islands. They were then involved in the invasion of Luzon, the largest and northernmost major island in the archipelago, and home of the Filipino capital, Manila. The 11th made its first combat jump at Tagaytay Ridge on February 3rd. As the Japanese defenses crumbled on the island of Luzon, American leadership became worried for the fate of many Americans in prison camps across the island. The concern stemmed from a horrible yet little-known event, the Palawan Massacre. Some 350 American POWs, captured in the Philippine Campaign in 1942, suffered terrible conditions at the notorious Camp 10A on the Philippine island of Palawan. Given starvation rations, housed in dilapidated buildings, denied medical care, and used as slave labor, the prisoners faced regular physical abuse. 
In September, approximately half the prisoners were returned to Manila, but 150 were left behind to complete work on an airfield. On December 14, 1944, concerned by the American advances in the Philippines, the 150 prisoners were taken into camp. A false air raid alarm was used to herd them into air raid shelters, which the guards then doused with gasoline and set on fire. Prisoners who tried to escape the flames were machine-gunned or bayoneted. Several were able to break free, but most of those were hunted down. Of the 150 prisoners, only 11 survived, some of whom managed to swim away from the island and reach American lines. On January 7th, Private First Class Eugene Nielsen of the 57th Coastal Artillery Regiment was able to recount the harrowing tale of his escape from the Palawan Massacre. American command realized the danger the Palawan Massacre represented for prisoners held throughout the Philippine Islands and decided upon a set of daring raids to rescue those prisoners. On January 30, 1945, 522 military and civilian POWs were rescued in a raid by Army Rangers and Filipino guerrillas from a camp near Cabanatuan City, an event that became known as the Great Raid. On February 3rd, a small force, including armor, was pushed forward to liberate the Santo Tomas internment camp, rescuing 3,785 mostly civilian prisoners. An advance unit of the 148th Infantry Regiment of the Ohio National Guard rescued some 1,200 military and civilian prisoners from the Bilibid Prison near Manila on February 4th, finding that the guards had abandoned the prison. The Los Banos Prison Camp was built from a campus of the University of the Philippines on the shore of Laguna Bay, the largest lake in the Philippines. The 60-acre camp was formed when the Santo Tomas Prison Camp became overcrowded, with 800 internees being brought to the camp in May of 1943. By February of 1945, over 2,000 prisoners were held in the camp. Aside from 11 Navy nurses, some of the Angels of Bataan, and a handful of servicemen, the prisoners were civilians. The camp conditions had deteriorated considerably by 1945, and the camp was overcrowded and unsanitary. Rations had been cut to almost nothing, and the guards had become more and more abusive. Frank Buckles, one of the prisoners, suffered from a thiamine deficiency, and at his rescue weighed less than 100 pounds. Among the garrison at the Los Banos prison, Imperial Japanese Army Lieutenant Sadaki Kanishi was the most hated and feared. Kanishi, who was the camp's second-in-command and supply officer, had a virulent and off-stated hatred for the white race. Among his many crimes, he deliberately withheld food from the prisoners. One prisoner said, Prisoners were dying so fast that the grave diggers, themselves men in miserable condition, could hardly keep up. On February 3rd, General Swing had been tasked with planning the operation to rescue the prisoners at Los Banos, but because of the 11th's engagement in Manila, could not act immediately. It wasn't until the 18th of February that the 511th could be pulled out of combat. General Swing's staff put together a plan to rescue the prisoners. A company of paratroopers under Lieutenant John Ringler was assigned to make the jump near the camp, while the 188th Glider Regiment under Colonel Robert Sewell was given the task of distracting the eight to 10,000 Japanese soldiers of the nearby Japanese 8th Army Division, called the Tiger Division. As Los Banos prisoner Carl Talbot noted, if any word of this rescue leaked out to the Japanese, the nearly 10,000 Japanese troops under General Fujishige, just eight miles from the prison camp, could commit a horrible massacre of the POWs and the rescuers. Lieutenant Colonel Gustavo Inglés was designated the coordinator for the 800 guerrillas who would take part in the attack. The guerrillas had friends in the camp and had been conducting intelligent operations for some time. A number of escapees also assisted, making contact with the guerrillas, providing troop positions, and even taking part in the raid. On February 21st, Lieutenant Ringler was briefed on the mission. General Swing warned him that we could take heavy losses of troops and internees if we're not successful. 
Ringler briefed his men and decided to have his soldiers jump from much lower than the usual 1,000-foot altitude. Army Air Force pilot Alex Morley explained the plan. The Filipino scouts had told us that the Japanese troops guarding the camp always went for morning calisthenics at the same time and at the same place, stacking their rifles together while exercising. We were to drop the paratroopers at the precise time when the Japanese were disarmed. The previous night, paratroopers under Lieutenant George Scow crossed the lake, dodging Japanese patrols. They met guerrillas and escaped internees, and Scow split his soldiers into six teams, assigning guerrillas with each. The groups infiltrated close to the camp and were assigned to attack the guards on the west side of the camp, exactly as the paratroopers dropped. In the early morning of the 23rd, the amphibious vehicles of the 672nd Amphibious Tractor Battalion, which would be used to transport the camp prisoners to safety, crossed the lake. The paratroopers had spent the moonless night at Nichols Airfield in Manila. Lieutenant Ringler led the jump, and they landed without casualties on the drop zone. Prisoner David Winslip described the scene. Out of the north came 18 transport planes. Ours. And to our amazement, out of the planes poured parachutists. The most beautiful sight ever seen by my gray eyes. The timing was perfect, and attorney Carol Talbot witnessed the effect. When the planes flew in, the Liberators decimated the sentries and neutralized enemy guards doing physical exercises in the morning, while their arms were stacked and unattended. When the time came, attorney Clive DeWitt said, Guerrilla troops were all over the place. They seemed to rise out of the ground. And I can vouch for the fact that they showed no mercy against the enemy. Thomas Waddy, vice president of the POW committee at the camp, described the fierce firefight that ensued. The ensuing fight went on for very long minutes without let-up. Enemy defenders caught by total surprise were pinned and cut down mercilessly by Liberator's fire. Then came the liberation of the prisoners. Soldiers recalled one lady who, when they arrived at the camp, seemed to have already packed her bag and was ready to go, but seemed somehow upset. When asked about her lack of enthusiasm for rescue, she replied, Night after night I have dreamed of this day, and in all my dreams of rescue, I was rescued by Marines. You're not Marines. The paratroopers then had the difficult task of organizing the 2,000 prisoners who were milling about the camp in a turbulent mass and retrieving belongings from the cabins. They had to clear the area quickly. To encourage them to stop delaying, Lieutenant Ringler ordered the huts burned. As the soldiers struggled to maintain order, one of the internees suddenly shouted, Enemy tanks! But it was not an attack. What the prisoner had thought were Japanese tanks were actually American LVTs, or Amphibious Landing Vehicles Tracked, there to carry the prisoners across the lake to the American lines. In the distance could be heard the sounds of the glider infantry making their diversionary attack on the Japanese Tiger Division. Among the internees rescued was Lois Kathleen McCoy, who had been delivered in the prison infirmary by a Navy nurse just three days before, the daughter of two American civilian internees. Also among them was Frank Buckles, a shipping executive who had been in Manila at the outbreak of war and had stayed behind to help supply U.S. troops. Buckles was a veteran who had enlisted with the U.S. Army in 1917 at the age of 16 and had seen action in the First World War driving ambulances. Buckles would become the last surviving American veteran of World War I before he passed away in 2011 at the age of 110. The official U.S. Army dispatch on the action said, By 1.30 p.m. that day, the last of the internees, paratroopers, and guerrillas had been evacuated from Los Banos. Apparently, the entire Japanese garrison had been killed. In all, 2,147 civilians were liberated. One internee said in an interview, I have to pinch myself now to realize that I am now free to do as I please. After 1135 days under the Emperor of Japan, you can't realize how I feel. 
Two soldiers of the Glider Infantry Regiment, John T. Doran and Vernal Ray McMurdy, were killed in the diversionary attack, and two of the Filipino guerrillas, Privates First Class Atanasio Castillo and Anselmo Soleil, were killed in the hand-to-hand -hand fighting in the camp. None of the prisoners were killed, and only one was lightly injured in the raid. Of the Filipino guerrillas, prisoner Clive DeWitt said, When I learned later of the great part they played in our rescue, I felt I owed them a debt of gratitude that I could never repay. In the otherwise near-perfect raid, however, one deed was left undone. Sadaki Kanishi had escaped. The Filipino guerrillas had warned the local population to vacate the area for fear of Japanese reprisals, but they had chosen to stay behind. A few days after the raid, Kanishi returned with a group of soldiers, and finding the camp empty, the prisoners gone, he and his soldiers and a group of Filipino rebels who were sympathetic to the Japanese took out their frustrations on the local population. They murdered 1,500 men, women, and children. Lieutenant Sadaki Kanishi was caught after the war, was tried and convicted of war crimes, and hanged. The 11th Airborne Division would fight on in the Philippines. Their last combat operation was to take part in the encirclement of the 52,000-strong Shobu Group in northern Luzon. They were part of the occupation of Japan until 1949, and in 1950 were made a training regiment. The 187th Regiment saw fighting in Korea while the rest trained stateside, and in 1965, the division was inactivated for good. Major General Joseph Swing commanded the division until 1948, retired from the military in 1954. He died in 1984 at the age of 90. The American public saw little newspaper coverage of the dramatic rescue. On the same day, 1,500 miles north and east of Manila, photographer Joe Rosenthal had taken a picture of six Marines raising a flag, a photo so dramatic that it had captured the nation's attention and pushed other war news to the back of the paper. In 2005, U.S. Representative Trent Franks sponsored House Joint Resolution 18 commemorating the raid. The resolution said, It is more important than ever to recognize the heroism and sacrifice of soldiers who risk their safety not to achieve some strategic objective, but simply to bring a comrade home. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy, a little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and of course, behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. Paratroopers have become legendary, and it's, it's thanks largely to their actions in World War II, but I think that, as we often point out you know, when we talk about paratroopers, that those successes almost always come with caveats. And so you know, when we talk about it, you know, what kind of weaknesses do paratroopers have? As a, as a military force. Well, they've been, and I don't, I don't want to pretend I'm a general or that I, because I, I didn't even serve, but uh, I can say from a historical standpoint, they've been used fairly rarely and they have uh, run into as many failures as successes. So, I mean, I, you know, part of it is these are troops that just have extra training, you know, they're, they, uh, so they're, mm -hmm. and the, so they can be very, very effective in combat. Uh, uh, but, I mean, as paratroopers, it's, you know, part of it, they can only drop so much equipment, so they're going to be lightly armed. Uh, but, uh, it's getting the paratroopers where you want them to be that is the difficult part. Uh, and uh, more often than not, there were problems with that. Uh, you can talk a lot about, say, the paratroopers at Market Garden or the paratroopers at D-Day and, and, and how they overcame obstacles and things like that. But, I mean, the bottom line is we put an awful lot of time and effort into those troops. And then, uh, you know, quite a number of them never made it even to the ground. I don't know how to say it. I mean, delivering people by parachute 
uh, depends upon things that you can't control, like the weather and, you know, who's shooting at you uh, in ways that that means that they have a fairly you know, limited, narrow kind of, of, of way that they're used. So so I can say, I mean, I, I don't know, I'm not a general. I don't know how I would apply parachutes today. We do have we do have airborne units today. But I mean, for the most part, uh, we don't do a lot of paradrop today. I mean, we, we, we don't really talk about that's how we even move airborne units anymore yeah. uh, because of those limitations. So, I mean, the, the Germans had some success uh, early in the war, but uh, they also had failure early in the war that kind of convinced them to kind of give up on those sort of paradrop operations, except for maybe, yeah. you know, small targeted operations. So, so I, I think the, the lesson that we learned is that sometimes they're brilliant uh, and sometimes they're uh, just a, a disaster. And sometimes it's in between where despite you know, all the setbacks, they were able to still, you know, operate in ways that, that you know, made a huge difference. Uh, I could say that yeah. uh, I can't imagine the terror and the, and the, and the, uh, the courage it would take to be jumping out of a plane with that equipment under fire, you know, in the, in the conditions yeah. that people did in the Second World War. It's just absolutely stunning. You look at those European drops, and my mm-hmm. God, I, I just can't even imagine. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, I think you're right that the, the difficulty is they, they almost never land where they're supposed to be. And whether that's because they're under fire weather yeah you, you know you drop uh, if you drop during the day they're easy targets if you drop at night who knows you're dropping them a lot of times we didn't even know where we were dropping them but uh, but i mean there are a lot of like uh, they considered using paratroopers at pantelleria we did an episode on that a few months ago and uh, there was just too much risk of the sharp rocks and etc they thought i think it would have been a disaster uh, and there have been other situations like that where they you know they looked at them and said they don't even they don't even really have a place that they could could use paratroopers uh, so uh, I, I think you know they have a they have a narrow application and uh, and in the second world war if you kind of look at how decision making was being done etc like that it, they, they they had this feeling that they had these large units of very specialized trained troops uh, and so they had to use them even if it wasn't necessarily the best way to use them you know they had to use them and they, you know those didn't didn't always work out and you know I think you can look back certainly in retrospect and say market garden was not was not a terribly well-considered operation. It was not likely to succeed in a number of different ways. Of course, a lot of things went wrong there. Uh, but uh, I, I think what we learn, and the fun thing about telling these stories is that, is that uh, sometimes, uh, you know, when it went brilliantly, I mean, it's it's absolutely amazing. Uh, and other times when, it, when it, it's still a good story from a historical perspective when it didn't go brilliantly. Yeah. Uh, but uh, these are all uh, the because these are elite troops because you're usually volunteering for that because you're usually getting more uh, training for that. Uh, they are always compelling bits of history because these are you know these are true heroes. I mean, virtually everybody who volunteered to jump out of a plane, uh, you know, it is it, an extremely yeah. brave, extremely you know a skilled troop, you know, trooper, and that's that's you know that's uh, that makes for at least interesting history. And even in conventional roles, the uh, the paratroopers proved to be very effective units. Yes, uh, yes, they did. Uh, but I mean, you can see why there's and that's not necessarily what we're trained for, sort of thing. So yes, but and so yeah, that's because they, they only I mean they only do the paradrop. Uh, if you know, for most of the folks at, at D Day, you dro- they dropped and then spent I mean weeks or months yeah, fighting just fighting the line. Yeah, yeah. As you know, yeah. as brigade units. So, yeah, it's uh, but it's interesting today because you know the idea of I mean there's some there's some stuff that comes before the World Wars where they talk about special force or the kind of special forces ish. You know, maybe even something like your know, Rangers yeah. and stuff like that early on. But uh, you know, the bottom line is the idea of really special forces came out of the Second World War, and they were they were mm-hmm. small units that have very specialized functions. And and now that's kind of all we hear about right i mean very rarely do you deploy large you know units of armies and stuff like that most at least operations 
you know, that we talk about, say, in America, yeah. there's, that's where we take those special units and we're, and we're only applying those units because they're, uh, because they're tactical advantage. And so it's just, uh, you know, it's a different, you know, we're in a different era now uh, and, and we do things yeah. differently. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's compelling to talk about stories uh, like Los Benos and Make an Island because, because we learned so much from those and it changed the whole way that we saw things. And it makes for a di- very different world now because, uh, because uh, it, it seems unlikely that we're going to have anything that's going to go on like Overlord or Market Garden. Uh, but you could see us doing something kind of ish uh, with uh, of Los Banos, right? Uh, and and that's yeah. more that's more that's, that what we kind of seems... figured out is if you want to drop ten thousand paratroopers, then nine thousand are not going to land where you want them to, uh, and some couple thousand are never going to hit or you know not going to hit the ground alive. Uh, but if you want to drop you know twenty guys or a hundred guys in the right spot at the right time, uh, that's how we really use them today, and that's and that's why one of the reasons why uh, Los Banos, which was really not kind of how paratroopers were thought were going to operate. Los Banos really became this model that is still studied today by, you know, military tacticians. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think, I think you're right. That, and it's, it's almost because we they almost kind of stumbled into it <laughs> is uh, there were, there were very few uh, paradroppers para in the Pacific. Uh, but this, this was a really interesting case yeah. where for very, that but they, and there were so few of them. With the sort of issues that you had like at, uh, on, at Over, on Overlord on D-Day, you know, the idea that you're going to have yeah. paratroopers sitting in the exact right spot at the exact right time in terms of this really coordinated attack sort of thing. Uh, maybe that's possible because it was so small, but also, I mean, everything had to go yeah. perfectly and it did. I mean, it's an absolutely incredible yeah. rate. It is, it's a sign of what happens with planning and everything like that. But, they, you know, they always talk about, you know, your, your battle plan, you know, never survives contact with the enemy. Uh, I mean, it, what we don't really know about Los Banos is is uh, they, they didn't have to face, you know, obstacles, things that went wrong in the middle of the of, of the event. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, it, it went so perfectly. Was that because of the planning or did it just work out because, you know, they didn't run into it? Yeah, yeah. And you can see that in, in, when you look at the two things that we talk about today, because the, the results and what happened at Macon Island was a lot different. Uh, and and yeah. it, it just says, you know, you know, you're careful training, you're careful planning. You know, sometimes it works and, and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Well, and they were, I mean, to some extent, I guess they were lucky uh, in that they, I mean, they had great planning. Yeah, though. They did, the yeah. fact that they landed, you know, when the Japanese were, they didn't even have their weapons. Yeah. Uh, that was, I mean, yeah, that was, that that it was so testament. much, so much was on the line. But I mean, you know, you know, you know, just, you know, one person, one guy that wasn't there when they were supposed to be yeah. there who saw it coming early or, you know, turn a machine gun into the, uh, into the prisoners or something like that could have, could have radically changed, you know, how that went. But I mean, it was all around. It was just such a, it was a lot of out of the box thinking. That's not, what the the amphibious tractors were really thought to do they didn't think of those no. as rescue devices across a lake uh, and uh, that's uh, and uh, the yeah, we, you know incredible. we got so much out of the philippine uh, rangers i mean the philippine troops uh, the us actually you know uh, uh, worked you know for for 50 years with the with with the philippine troops and and uh, incredibly brave soldiers who served in so many different ways and certainly in in the war but how how you apply those troops was very difficult in the Philippines, especially considering that you know that the Japanese are going to engage in some brutal retaliation, whatever you do. Yeah. So, I mean, that really great targeted use of the of the the Philippine troops, and and I mean, it was uh, it was all around. Uh, it was, I mean, it was a raid that you know when they sat down and did it, they did a lot of out of the box thinking. And you have to think that there's people looking at it saying, now there's just too much too many moving parts here. Is this really going to work? Uh, and and it did. But I mean, it's 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 really a, it, it's one of those that. I mean, it's like a movie plot, you know. When you watch a movie yeah. and say, "No, nah, it would never work out that way," it did, and and uh, everything it worked does. Out. Yeah, I'm kind of kind of surprised there hasn't been a good thriller written on the making of, on yeah. the raid because <laughs> or the, the Los Spanish raid because it was it was such a you know brilliant operation. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you could uh, there was a lot of tension because yeah, there's so many things that could have gone yeah. wrong. And it's it's interesting because I think usually we when we talk about various operations, when we end up spending quite a bit of time on how things go wrong, almost almost regardless of what the situation is. I mean, a lot of what makes the stories we tell interesting is how they overcame those situations. And this is one of those cases where it was all about how well it went. Yeah. <laughs> and yet still, you know, when they when the the guy yells tanks because they're worried the Japanese are bringing up armor and it's the LVTs, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like there was a zero percent chance that uh, they were they had the diversionary yeah. action. I mean, if that had if yeah, they had there were I mean, there troops. were thousands of troops that were that were yeah. frighteningly nearby. And yeah, it was. Yeah. So I mean it's it's a compelling story. It's one of the stories truth is is uh, uh, is more interesting even than you know than fiction. You, why has yeah. this not been made? All that sort of stuff that comes out of this really fascinating story. But it also I mean when you when you try to ask you know what does this teach us about paratroopers? I mean it teaches us that they can be absolutely brilliant uh, if everything goes right. Yeah, that's what it teaches us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's and it's man planning is important, but uh, we've. Sometimes it pays off, and I think yeah. that's one of the cool things about yeah. this particular is that it that it did pay off. Um, I did want to talk about we par- paratroopers were used not like frequently in World War II, <laughs> but more frequently in World War II than I think any yeah. other conflict. Yeah. The one that I I was looking into it and kind of just to see, and we there were a couple um, mostly American, but they used them in some other places. We dropped some paratroopers into Grenada. Oh, uh-huh. apparently. And uh, and then the most recent use actually was we dropped we dropped troops in 2003 into Iraq, um, in uh, in the north because Turkey refused to allow us to uh, use them as a base essentially. And so the 173rd ABCT was alerted for a combat jump, and they uh, dropped along with uh, U.S. Air Force 786th Security Forces Squadron uh, to capture an airfield. Oh. And so that was the hmm. uh, apparently the 786th doing that was the the first and only combat jump by conventional Air Force personnel. And that's, so we haven't. I don't think we've done anything I mean, that, since that, then. That'd make but... a, I think that'd make a great episode. I mean, I don't, you know, it's it, it was some interesting stuff. And then, of course, somebody. this is stuff I, I I kind of just learned. Yeah, because um, I, I, I was just looking into it. I mean, we still train. Uh, but I mean, even when you look at our airborne troops today, they're mostly still uh, not paradropping. It's our yeah. general way, the way that we would deploy the. I think I think well, the eighty second insertion maybe, uh, by uh, say helicopter is is quite a considerably more accurate and uh, safer than. Not that it doesn't have its risks as well, but it, it looks. I mean, so I was just kind of I was interested in it. So there were a couple of times where we dropped some in Korea. There was one drop in Vietnam. It looks like, uh, and I don't know the details on those, but I thought it was kind of interesting. You know, the 21st century has seen some use of uh, of drops, but not not a whole lot. Apparently, there were some that dropped into in 2001 in Afghanistan as well. But yeah, I think that I mean, I think that for the most part, even if we talk about large scale operations, that none of them are even close to the scale of you know uh, D-Day or Operation Varsity and stuff like that. Um, I did think it was, but I did think it was interesting. We still train them. Uh, who knows? Who knows? And these days, uh, yeah, those airborne troops might be. Uh, inserted differently but apparently we do still train them to drop and there are like italy i guess has has some paratroopers as well well i'm sure other yeah they're, they're, i'm sure that you know russians have have airborne troops and the chinese probably do and um i imagine that and i and i don't know we've not been well we've not had a lot of situations where they would use them but there there could still be some yeah, useful uh, well, I, I mean suppose. Is, special operations are a little different uh and and i yeah. I, I i mean uh 
I wouldn't be surprised if we did some airdropping into Afghanistan during the during the war as well. Yeah, well, especially in those those crazy because yeah, uh, it's, cause of it's the how terrain. you insert people into the mountains or whatever. Yeah, but I mean, also, you know, helicopters have become so much more effective than they were in the Second World War. Yeah. I mean, there were only very little use in the Second World War, and I think that's mostly how we did insertion in 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 so what in the global war on terror when we're inserting people, and, and that's how yeah. we do X fill uh, and you know. Yeah. So uh, I so I, I you know I think that it's different. We you know if we were to fight another a third world war, who knows what it'd be like. But I mean I, I don't think yeah. that we've seen para operations in uh, Ukraine, and there's some ways where that might have been uh, so. you know a place where you'd want to do it. Uh, and so I think we've <laughs> the world has changed where it's less likely. But who knows? You know who, who knows? But I mean you could you could certainly see something like Los Banos uh, a lot more yeah, today than definitely. you can imagine something like Overlord or or, or Market Garden. Yeah. I, I did. It's it's interesting because when when I first looked at this, of course, Los Baños, in in a in a literal sense, is the bathrooms. Uh-huh. Yeah, the, we, as soon which, as we produced this episode, people were saying that. I mean, it's the name of the place. We didn't make it yeah. up. To, like they're doing this in the bathrooms. No, and I, I think that actually goes back to a, the Catholic era. There was a, there was a monastery or something there, and that's where they went down to bathe. Essentially, was, you know, yeah. There was a, there's there's some hot springs, I guess, nearby. Yeah. And so yeah, it's more as opposed to the bathrooms. In this case, it more means like, a yeah, bathing like a, spot, a place to yeah, go bathe. Yeah. Yeah, as opposed to the 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 commode. yeah on the side of the lake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is kind of funny. That was the name of the camp, and yeah, the people were. <laughs> uh, well, and I, I thought it was interesting because the, the in all the explanations of you know when you look at this uh, when you look at this thing, they don't really talk about that. The name of the place isn't really really relevant, except for that that happened to be what where the it name was of the at. Camp but was, yeah. I had to look that up because I was a little curious. And yeah, because I think I it's knew a very that, you know, old name for it though, and I think out. it had to do with uh, yeah. you know fairly early period in in the Spanish uh, part of the Philippines, the Spanish history of the Philippines. And I don't think, uh, well, I think it still has that name even, but there's uh, there's some stuff uh, there. I don't know that anyone's bathing in that in that area anymore. I mean, it's a lake there. It's on a lake shore. <laughs> That's true. Um, and of course, you know, as we as we talked about, this operation has been widely lauded for many, many years, uh, we, even into the modern era that it's it's a well-studied one for, for how it went so well, whether that's, you know, a matter of how the success worked in terms of the planning or how it went in terms of how they put in the troops. I think that it, it ended up being a very significant part of how we learned to use special forces. And I, I think we've kind of talked about, you know, what made this one so successful? Well, of course, the planning mm-hmm. and the people involved, but also at least a little bit of yeah. luck. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think there had to be. But if you look at it, I mean, they they really did account for a, a lot of things. Um, and so, it, yeah. you know, it's hard to say, you know, but uh, I mean, we've talked about some other operations where, you know, they, they you know, they cross-trained and they planned and et cetera, and they ended up just having to do an awful lot of, you know, on the spot, do things differently. So one of the things that certainly sets Los Benos apart is everything just went well. I mean, they planned it to go well, yeah. and it did. Uh, and the planning certainly paid off. Uh, but I mean, it's it, you look at it, and the whole time when you're even listening to the episode, you're saying, "Wow, something something could go wrong," and it, it just it didn't. You know, it yeah. went very very well. You have to you almost have to feel bad for those Japanese camp guards. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, the things did not go very well <laughs> for them. Shot up during <laughs> calisthenics and very very angry <laughs> guys with machetes running into um, the camp. Yeah, it sounds like it was. A... Yeah, it's it's uh, it's too bad that you know the the guy in charge of the camp that, that was the you know the big um, the big thing about it is the guy that was the worst that they thought was the most you know troublesome. He didn't happen to be there and and he engaged in retaliation afterwards. Hard to say if that would. Um, that's, would have occurred anyway, uh, but uh, if yeah. you, you know, the only thing that you can really say about it is it's too bad that they didn't, uh, weren't able to uh, 
uh, eliminate him with the rest of the camp guards yeah. because he was he was clearly yeah, see, someone... it seems like that would have but they might you're right they might have still the the retaliation thing was one of those it was one of the mm-hmm. things that they did quite frequently well and that's a, they had to know i mean that's you know they, they had to know whenever they took on this operation that it means that the, the yeah. philippine civilians were going to be killed because that's just simply how the japanese operated there and yeah, and they apparently couldn't convince them to to leave uh, and they well and i i don't know it's hard it's gotta be hard to leave your homes too but uh, it's it's a tragedy that that was the the reaction especially since you know those people the civilians didn't have really anything to do with yeah. the, well i mean uh, that the attack you know, the u.s we didn't have to you know we didn't have to face you know being occupied and what that means yeah uh, and so the the people that were in that camp those the, those are the americans who did uh and and had to you know learn what it was like to be a civilian in war uh and uh you know, which has got to be horrifying, and so the you know the fact that we had to that we knew that this operation would end up sacrificing civilians because the Japanese would respond the way they did, which was totally predictable. Uh, it also just tells you a lot about the you know, the situation in the war. But yeah, uh, but it's amazing yeah. that we uh, saved all, only one prisoner injured, uh, saved all you know, all the way down to a newborn baby, uh, and the people that had survived so much, and we we got them out of there. Yeah, it had to be yeah. uh, the lady that was upset because she thought she was going to be rescued by Marines. And she was. <laughs> That's just comical. Yeah, she's like, I always thought the Marines would come in. You're, you're not, not Marines. Marines. Uh, <laughs> but that was perhaps uh, not, not necessarily the the location to have used Marines. Although certainly, I mean, there were Marines that like Yeah, yeah. I don't, it's I mean, just I mean, how I mean, it worked out. But... Marines in the Pacific. But I don't know why why necessarily she had that in her head there. Yeah, but uh now that I I, I kind of get the you get, get kind of an image of of the heroic soldier and you're just thinking of that that well muscled marine who's coming in what? and uh, these are just I kind of doubt although... these special forces guys were uh, not <laughs> I know right you probably physical just specimens fine, right? they I mean, were wearing the wrong uniforms yeah that's uh, I don't I don't know I'm not sure exactly what what ruined that about it so, uh, I would have yeah, been I'm, happy I'm to not completely sure who was driving the uh, the Amtrak's were those Marines were those Navy yeah, I mean uh, uh, I don't know that the Army operated those things so maybe she did see Marines there uh, they just weren't there at the yeah. beginning. Um, and of course, it's it's important to mention, like you do in the the episode, uh, Filipino guerrillas and the work that they did. I mean, this this absolutely I, part of the under, reason underappreciated well. by Americans in a number of different yeah. ways. Uh, and, but I mean, and you know, even even prior to the war, but I mean, that was very close cooperation for a very long time, and very you know brave people who sacrificed a lot. Yeah. Uh, and you have to wonder because there was a lot of that after. War, where the Allies worked very, very closely with with some of these units, and then afterwards were sort of abandoned. Um, but I mean, here you, you you just have to acknowledge it. And I think the people, even the prisoners, were surprised to see it and had to very much acknowledge, uh, you know, what a yeah. what a role they played. And it's too easy to be too arrogant about, oh, you know, Yankees or whatever. There were some absolutely very fine troops that that we were serving with in yeah. the Philippines and who did absolutely brilliant service. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV? I've watched a few things, actually. I was watching some space stuff, but the, the one I was going to talk about is I watched one about the Limbus Strait. It's called the, the Limbus Strait Walking Fish. So this is a strait uh, in, in Indonesia. I, watch, I, I like nature doc- documentaries sometimes, and the, you know, it's talking about these very strange-looking sea creatures, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Let's look at some videos, some weird-looking stuff. But actually, Limbus Strait has a really interesting story uh, because of the way that the current works. I mean, it is incredibly rich uh, in diversity, but uh, it's been mostly fished to the point where 
where there's not uh, viability for commercial fishing, uh, and its it's its most economic potential is it's used for sport diving, as people go just to look at these these strange fish here, which you get this this incredible biodiversity there. But on the other hand, uh, because of its location, that these large acts that are used to protect marine sanctuaries uh, don't apply to the strait. It's got no legal protection, so its its entire protection depends upon the mm. people who make their money as diving groups are protecting it because that's that's their economic advantage. I mean, it's interesting from its its ecological standpoint, and it's interesting from the political standpoint. Uh, and I, you know, it was fascinating because I, I was just uh, you know watching to, to to watch pictures of weird fish. And if you wanna if you wanna watch a documentary of some of the weirdest looking stuff <laughs> under, under the ocean, man, there's some there's some things down there that don't look like that should be a that should be alive. Uh, I, I, was, I mean, honestly, there's so much you can watch on Magellan TV. I really really enjoyed it both because it was a really fun nature documentary, but it also had a really interesting point about economics and environmentalism and 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 uh, you know humans living inside these the environment. Uh, and so it was I, absolutely worth your time too because uh, you're just going to see some there's some really weird stuff lives at the bottom of the the Limbus Strait. Uh, what about you? What what you've been watching? So I was I was watching a space mm-hmm. one, and so there's a series called Space: The New Frontier. And so this it seemed like their goal here with this with this series is to talk about various advances, various things that aren't necessarily in the news. And so the one that I watched is called From There to Here. It's the first episode, and what it talks about is satellites, and it's mostly talking about weather satellites mm-hmm. and stuff. So essentially, uh, landsats, stuff that we're using to examine how our planet works. Uh, they even they were even talking about uh, measure ocean salinity weather a lot has to do with wind and stuff like that it's really interesting and so they're talking about all these essentially these various satellites and these various missions that are working to kind of better understand how things work on this planet and in kind of the the macro weather way and so it's, it's really interesting to see how that stuff has changed and I, th- I think it's i think it's important for us to kind of take a look at occasionally just what amazing things are going on in the world that we don't necessarily always uh, know about and so it's got a lot of episodes. Uh, they're all going to be talking about various different things, not just about the Earth, but they've got ones on the inner worlds, on the sun, the edge of the universe, things like that. So it's really just talking about a very broad array mm-hmm. of kind of science stuff that we're learning. And if, if this is the kind of stuff you want to, if you're interested in space and what we're doing in space, I think Space, the New Frontier, is worth yeah. watching. It just shows you the, you know, the breadth of what's available on Magellan TV. Every time you're just looking through and there's so many things to see. So if, if you want to talk Absolutely. about the Second World War or the Revolutionary War or any point in history, or you know any dynasty or whatever it's all there but you can also uh, tune in and you can see true crime or you can see uh, nature or you can see space there's thousands of documentaries there and uh, i always say everyone worth watching i've never turned one on that i didn't enjoy and of course if you are a listener or watcher of the history guy you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash history guy where we will always have a deal for you, sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Next up, the History Guy talks about the raid on Macon Island. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the History Guy. On August 7th, 1942, an initial force of some 7,000 Marines landed on Guadalcanal and surrounding islands of the British Solomon Islands, the beginning of a grueling six-month-long campaign that would eventually cost more than 30,000 casualties on all sides. Ten days after that initial invasion, a newly formed type of Marine unit was sent on a daring raid that would challenge both the tactics and the volunteers of what has been described as the United States' first special operation force. The August 1942 raid on Macon Island by the 2nd Battalion of the Marine Raiders is history 
that deserves to be remembered. The inspiration for the Marine Raiders were the British commandos, special units that had been equipped and trained to conduct raids on German-occupied Europe. In the Pacific, Admiral Chester Nimitz, Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, requested units trained and equipped to make raids on the numerous lightly defended Japanese-held islands. The 1st and 2nd Raider Battalions were created in February 1942 by order of the President, acting on a proposal by Wild Bill Donovan, the legendary officer who would go on to lead the Office of Strategic Services. The Raider Battalions specialized in conducting small unit amphibious rubber boat insertions, light infantry warfare, and executing independent raids behind Japanese lines. Central to the formation of the Raiders was an innovative officer, Major Evans Carlson. Carlson had served in the Army in the Mexican Punitive Expedition in 1916 and 17, and then in France during the Great War. He left the Army in 1922 and enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1923, and had earned the Navy Cross in Nicaragua in 1930. Between 1936 and 1938, he'd served as an intelligence officer in China, acting as an observer with the Chinese forces fighting the Imperial Japanese Army. He had not only learned about Japanese Army tactics, but had been impressed by guerrilla tactics used by the Chinese Communist forces fighting them. His experience led him to resign his commission in 1939 in order to travel in the United States, writing and lecturing about the dangers of Japanese aggression in the Far East. Carlson rejoined the Marines after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. There were misgivings within the military establishment. Carlson had been sympathetic to the Chinese Communists and had distinctive leftward political leanings. But Carlson had first-hand experience fighting the Japanese Army, and more importantly, he had the ear of the President. In 1933, Carlson had commanded the Marine Detachment in Warm Springs, Georgia, where FDR vacationed. There he had formed a relationship with both the President and FDR's oldest son, James Roosevelt. He was able to leverage that relationship both to aid in the proposal to create the Marine Raiders, which was opposed by some core traditionalists, but also to be appointed commander of the 2nd Raiders Battalion, despite concerns about his politics. James Roosevelt, then a captain in the Marine Corps, was made Carlson's second-in-command. The Raider Battalions were created from volunteers and given special equipment. The 1st Battalion, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Merritt Edson, trained along traditional lines of marine organization and discipline, and pioneered landing tactics using the newly designed high-speed transports created from modified World War I four-stacker destroyers. Given his experience with the Chinese Communist forces, Carlson took a less traditional approach. He created a force that was less hierarchical, focusing on team-building and something called ethical indoctrination that stressed to his men what they were fighting for and why. He also changed the structure of the Marine organization. Traditionally, the basic fighting unit had been an eight-man squad. Carlson instead used ten-man squads that consisted of a squad leader and three fire teams. Because of the nature of jungle warfare, his fire teams were built around volume of fire, with each team including a man armed with a Browning automatic rifle, a man armed with a Thompson submachine gun, and a man armed with an M1 rifle. To his unit, Carlson emphasized the term gung-ho, which he'd gotten in China. In Chinese industrial cooperatives, the word gung-ho roughly meant working together, although the American pronunciation and meaning was actually quite different than the way that it was used in China. Eventually, the term was adopted throughout the Marine Corps, represented spirit and enthusiasm. Edson's 1st Raider Battalion were among the first to land as part of the Guadalcanal Campaign on August 7th, landing on the island of Tulagi. They saw distinguished service in the campaign, notably in the September 1942 Battle of Edson's Ridge. But Carlson's 2nd Raiders were assigned to an operation that would test the philosophy of these new types of units. They were to raid a small, lightly defended island in the Gilbert Island chain, 
then called Macon Island. Part of a small atoll in the Gilbert chain, Macon Island was exactly what Nimitz had meant when he described lightly defended Japanese-held islands. First occupied by the Japanese in December 1941, the island was the location of a Japanese seaplane base. The seaplanes would conduct long-range reconnaissance, and the tiny island held a mixed force of only some 70 defenders responsible for tending the floatplanes. Guam and the Aleutian island of Attu had also been considered for the raid, but both were too heavily defended and too far away from the Solomons to likely draw off reinforcements from Guadalcanal. 211 Marines of the 2nd Marine Battalion were to embark on two submarines, USS Argonaut and USS Nautilus, land on the island via rubber boats, and attempt to defeat the Japanese garrison, gather intelligence, and destroy the facility and its aircraft. Raider Ben Carson noted that the raiders had never trained on a submarine, and most had never been on one before the raid. The hope was that the attack would draw Japanese forces away from the Solomon Islands in the Guadalcanal campaign. The raid was scheduled for August 17th, 10 days after the initial invasion of Guadalcanal. The raid experienced difficulties from the outset. The raiders were embarking on LCRLs, or landing craft, rubber, large. The rafts held 10 men were powered by outboard motors. The plan had been to load the men in boats and then have the submarine submerged beneath them. But the morning of the 16th, after a nine-day journey from Pearl Harbor, the raiders were confronted by rough seas with high swells and rain. It took much longer to prepare and load the boats than it had been in training, and some boats with equipment and supplies were washed away. Instead of being able to load everyone and have the submarine submerged beneath them, the boats had to be lowered over the side of the submarine. In the rough surf, the onboard motors became swamped. The Marines were forced to paddle in the surf. Carson said the whole thing was a confused mess. The Marines arrived on the island in a confused state with equipment losses and the heavy surf. Carson described the night as as dark as the inside of a black cow. A Marine from Company A accidentally discharged his weapon, potentially jeopardizing the entire operation. There were boats missing, including the boat carrying Lieutenant Oscar Petrus, the commander of B Company. The raiders were originally supposed to land at two beaches, but Carlson recognized the difficulty in the high surf and decided to land all the raiders on a single beach. The order had been given by word of mouth, but Petrus's boat had become separated from the others and, in the confusion, didn't get the message. The twelve men made it to the second beach, only to find themselves the only ones there. The rest of the raiders had landed on the other beach, designated Beach Z. They had hidden their rafts, camouflaging them with palm fronds. The situation was confused. The advanced element under Sergeant Clyde Thomason had deployed to defend the landing beach, but some groups from Company B, originally intended from the other landing beach, had moved off on their own towards their original objectives. Carlson radioed the Nautilus, noting the disorganized landing. He described the situation as lousy. As dawn broke, he was able to better organize his raiders, and they started moving inland. They encountered island natives who were friendly and described the location of the Japanese garrison. As they moved inland, they started to run into sniper fire. Sergeant Thomason, who was at six foot four inches, too tall for raiders' requirements, and had to get a waiver to join the unit, at one point dauntlessly walked up to a house which concealed an enemy Japanese sniper, forced in the door, and shot the man before he could resist. As they moved towards the Japanese base, men of Company A spotted a truck carrying Japanese soldiers. Dean Winters of A Company was carrying a boy's anti-tank rifle. The British-made .55-inch rifle was popularly referred to as the elephant gun. He said, I hit the deck, braced myself, and fired, hitting the truck and the radiator. Steam poured out, and several Japs tumbled out. More Japanese soldiers arrived on foot, and Sergeant Thomason arranged his squad in a horseshoe formation, preparing for a Japanese attack. The Japanese charged with their bayonets fixed to cross open ground, one of the dreaded bonsai charges. Thomason's squad was well prepared, cut them down.
The Japanese opened up with machine guns. The platoon moved to flank them. The platoon took casualties, but silenced the guns. The action was over in 30 minutes. The Raiders were exhausted and had taken casualties. The Raiders were still pinned down by sniper fire. Sergeant Thomason, who had served an enlistment in the Marines between 1934 and 1939 and had re-enlisted after Pearl Harbor, was killed by a sniper. He had exposed himself to fire to draw fire away from his men. The snipers were targeting squad leaders, radio operators, and even medics who removed the Red Cross armband so as not to be targets. The Raiders became bogged down by snipers in what became known as the Battle of the Breadfruit Trees. At Roosevelt's orders, the Argonaut and Nautilus used their duck guns to sink two vessels in the harbor, a transport, and a gunboat. The vessels were sunk, but it wasn't clear if the transport had been carrying troops, and if so, what had become of them. Carlson could no longer be sure of the size of the force that he was facing. Some snipers snuck through the perimeter, attacking the Raider Command and Aid Post. James Roosevelt was at the post directing operations as Carlson had moved forward to encourage his men. At one point, Roosevelt himself had returned fire against the snipers and received a light wound. While Carlson and Roosevelt were dealing with snipers, Lieutenant Petros and his men had moved forward and found themselves in the enemy's rear. They destroyed a vehicle and some ammunition, a base radio station, and killed eight enemy. Unbeknownst to them, one of those they killed was Sergeant Major Kizaburo Kenamitsu, the Japanese commander. Piotras' squad had taken three men killed, two more wounded. Not able to make contact with Carlson, Piotras took his men back to the beach to evacuate to the submarines. A group of Japanese aircraft arrived, forcing Argonaut and Nautilus to dive. They bombed and strafed the Marines. Two seaplanes landed in the lagoon. The Marines opened fire with machine guns and anti-tank rifles. The smaller plane, the Nakajima E-8N Dave, caught fire as it taxied. The larger plane, the Kawanishi H-8K Emily, capable of carrying up to 40 troops, tried to take off to avoid the Raiders' fire. Took off too steeply, stalled, and crashed. Both planes were destroyed, but Carlson could not tell if any reinforcements had made it off the crashed Emily. Under air and sniper attack, unaware of how many enemy he was still facing, and knowing the Japanese would be able to reinforce the garrison sometime, Carlson decided to withdraw. The plan was to uncover the boats and escape to the submarines under cover of darkness. But again, the waves were high and the surf powerful. Only a few of the boats and 80 men, including Lieutenant Piotras, made it back to the submarines. Raider Ray Baum recalled, There were about 10 of us paddling out over the breakers, and we were tipped over three times before we got past them. You can't believe when there is danger how you respond to it. The current was pulling us back, but we somehow made it to the sub. But Carlson and about 120 raiders could not make it through the surf. What's more, in the attempt, they'd become exhausted and had lost most of their equipment. Only 20 men who had served as a rear guard were still fully armed. Carlson was unable to raise either submarine on the radio and did not know if they had been sunk or forced to withdraw by the air attack. In fact, the Japanese garrison was nearly annihilated, but Carlson could not know that. By some accounts, in a desperate situation, Carlson made the difficult decision to surrender. A Marine was able to track down a single Japanese sailor, and they handed him a note to take back to his command. But the surrender attempt failed, as the Japanese sailor was apparently shot by another raider who didn't know what mission he was on. But many raiders dispute that that ever happened, arguing, among other things, that Carlson never would have surrendered a unit that included President Roosevelt's son. There's no mention of an attempt to surrender in the after-action reports. The Raiders spent a dismal night, but in the morning they were able to raise Argonaut on the radio. A number of Marines, including Major Roosevelt, were able to make it to the submarines, and Lieutenant Pietras carried a message to Carlson with a plan to evacuate the rest of the Raiders that evening. It was a dangerous plan, as the Japanese might bring reinforcements at any time. But the submarines could not be caught in the open during the day with Japanese planes on the prowl. 
Carlson and his remaining 70 or so men counted their casualties and paid the local police chief to bury the raiders dead. They also located and burned more than a thousand barrels of aviation fuel. By lashing their rafts together and with the assistance of two native outrigger canoes, the remaining raiders, many of them wounded, made it back to the submarines that evening. There's still disagreement over whether the raid was a success or a failure. Despite the obstacles, the raiders had managed to annihilate the garrison on Macon Island. They had sunk two boats, destroyed two seaplanes, burned a thousand barrels of airplane fuel. And despite the fact that they didn't capture any Japanese prisoners, they had captured intelligence in their headquarters that included details on the defenses of Japanese bases throughout the Pacific. While the raid does not seem to have achieved its primary objective of diverting reinforcements from Guadalcanal, the raid was a propaganda victory that improved morale at a time when war news was desperate for the nation. The raiders' surgeon, Dr. Steven Stigler, recalled that when the raiders reached Pearl Harbor, by the time we got abreast of the first ship, they were out on deck, standing at attention, saluting us. Each ship we passed saluted us. They were playing the Marine Corps hymn, and they were cheering. It was all very emotional. The impact of the raid on U.S. morale was reinforced by the 1943 release of a film about the battle called Gung Ho, the story of Carlson's Macon Island Raiders. In all, the Raiders listed 18 men killed in combat and 12 missing. Nine of the 12 missing were apparently from a raft that had become separated on the last day. In the evacuation, there had been no way to do an accurate head count, and Carlson had assumed that those men had been picked up by the other submarine. Those nine men were captured alive and eventually executed by beheading. In 1947, Japanese Admiral Koso Abe was convicted of war crimes for their execution and was sentenced to death by hanging. Macon Island was retaken from the Japanese in the November 1943 Battle of Macon Island. There was an attempt at the time to find the graves of the Marines who had died in the raid, but the location of the graves were not located at that point, and in fact the mass grave wasn't found clear until 1999. Through the use of DNA, the Marines were able to identify the 18 raiders who had been killed in combat and one of the Marines that had been listed as missing in action. Six of the sets of remains were sent back to families for burial, and the rest were buried in Arlington National Cemetery. For the raid on Macon Island, Carlson was awarded his second Navy Cross. Major Roosevelt and Lieutenant Petros were also given that award. Sergeant Clyde Thomason was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. He was the first Marine of the Second World War to be awarded that medal. A Buckley-class destroyer escort that was commissioned in 1943 was named the USS Thomason in his honor. In 1944, a Casablanca-class escort carrier was named the USS Macon Island in honor of the raid on Macon Island, and that was followed up in 2006 by a WASP-class amphibious assault ship. The motto of the USS Macon Island is, of course, gung-ho. So, we talked about it a little bit in the last, in the last uh, episode, but... World War II was like a really significant time kind of in this the the history of special mm -hmm. forces and the the marine raiders were a significant piece mm -hmm. of that so i did just kind of want to talk about some of how those special forces kind mm -hmm. of evolved throughout world war II, uh, and what what that had to do with i, I mean to some mm -hmm. extent just the the yeah, unique I mean, it's, it's, situations it like that we were kind of moved in. to that's a, that's what we use these days that's yeah. because well because we're not fighting a war we don't usually send out whole divisions and etc but uh yeah i mean we learned a lot about what you can do and what what you could not necessarily do with uh, with special forces and special training and and the, the marine raiders are an example of that one of the things that's interesting is that we had a couple of different uh, uh, uh marine raiders units that had very different commanders with different philosophies and they behaved differently they you know, they used them differently 
and that, that really helped us to learn, you know, some ways that you can apply, you know, those those types of forces and what they mean. But you know, the the idea here of a you know of a well trained, quick hitting force that's trained in jungle combat, uh, and that their you know their armament was really built around volume of fire. That was really interesting. Uh, yeah. And uh, so I, I mean, there was, and then when you have that unit, you're saying, how am I going to best use that unit? Uh, and uh, you know, make an island was was an idea of you know if we'd spend this time and effort training these units, what we could do with them. And one of the things that's interesting is it you know it didn't it didn't go all that well. I mean, there's still talk about was was that raid successful? Was that raid not successful? Uh, and so we you know we were really learning by trial and error. And uh, you know, the difference between yeah. how that went and the raid in Las Banas went was is really notable. Uh, you know, very, um, different raids for different purposes for different kind of groups. But I mean, it still just says you know what happens you know if everything doesn't necessarily go the way that you want it to go. Uh, but but uh, it is another story, uh, and uh, you know, it has been made into a movie. I, you know, it hasn't been made into a more modern movie, but it's another story. But it's a, it's a story about when things start going wrong. How do you how do you overcome? Uh, and uh, that's uh, you know perhaps the you know the most interesting part of the story is how they got off the island with most of their men. Yeah. But I mean, there's also the tragic story about the ones that didn't get off the island as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting with with special forces because I mean, of course, they're specialized. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's kind of the whole point of them, but. It's interesting, too, how you, you try to specialize them in a way so that they're going to be very useful in very specific situations, but you don't necessarily want, you know, a special force that's only going to be useful in, like, mm-hmm. one situation. You want it to be versatile enough that it can find its way through multiple ones. And this uh, this was a this was a very difficult... I mean, island landings are always mm-hmm. difficult. Uh, they He didn't know what he was what he was facing. To some extent, there... I mean, he had pretty good intelligence, but then there were things that went wrong where yeah. they, they didn't know what happened, if, if more troops had yeah, been landed. That's... And so, I mean, that's one of the things that could have very easily gone yeah, wrong. Say they were taking a very at, small uh, force for, for what they were attacking, yeah. and so even a very small change. I mean, you know, one of the things that went wrong at Market Garden is that there were, there were units there that they weren't expecting there because they were there to you know, reorganize yep. and, and it turned out that you know that there was a much greater force that they were having to fight so that easily could have happened on Macon Island and and uh, but I mean it was you know even just the weather made a huge difference you know they they, yeah. uh, they couldn't land the way the, they the spent, so they didn't choppy. have the equipment that they that they expected to have and it was getting off the island there it's hard to imagine because all the training that these guys go through that the problem is that they're exhausted they can't go in the ocean anymore yeah. uh, and they've lost most of their equipment and they're stuck on land I mean it's a terrifying situation uh, and that's you know no matter how much you train for. And uh, uh, and the movie that was made was made during the war. It's kind of a propaganda film that maybe overstates, you know, what they did and how they did. And certainly <laughs> it doesn't show their difficulty getting into the rafts. <laughs> it's, if you've ever yeah, watched it, it's uh... where half the movies them rowing in the rubber rafts. And we used uh, we used bits of the trailers in the public domain. So I, w- I was using pieces of the trailer and stuff like that in the in the video. Uh, but uh, uh, the you know, the the breadth of what can go wrong is actually, you know, pretty, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. And to an extent, it's pretty terrifying because you can be, you know, the best trained, the best equipped, the best force there is. And then you can be just suddenly in a very, very bad situation. And you know, like anybody else, well, no matter how well mm-hmm. trained you are, you know, you can't breathe underwater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. And you can, and you can be, and you can be outnumbered. And, uh, you know, and yeah. uh, it's interesting to have these two together as an episode because one went so perfectly well yeah. and the other one they had to overcome so much. Uh, you wouldn't say make an Island was, uh, was a failure. And, and actually, you know, many people on the Ray probably wouldn't want to tell you that. But, I mean, at the time, uh, we really overstated its success because we needed for there to be successes. But you have to think as a military planning standpoint, you're saying, was this worth it? And would we do this again? Well, and I know that part of the goal had been to pull off to try to pull off troops from uh, from the Solomon Islands. Yes, what was going it, on it, they did not seem to do any significant shift yeah. in troops. I mean, certainly it put the Japanese in a position where they didn't know if any garrison was safe because they, they did actually end up just essentially swiping out the garrison of Maker, Maker Island. Yeah, little did they know. That's that's one of the things that, you know, now we can 
look back at it and be like, ah, they they really might have been able to secure the uh-huh. island. But he had he had yeah, no he idea. didn't know he didn't they know had and, no and, idea. And, and, and you know you can't sacrifice your whole you know unit to do it. So no. But I mean, they were in better shape than they probably thought they were, and maybe they could have gone and taken yeah. control of all the headquarters and maybe gotten you know equipment and prisoners and the other things that they wanted to. They might have been able to you know take boats out to the submarines rather than having to try to you know get through the surf. Uh, but you, you know you don't know. I mean, you, you never know what's what's on the other side of the of yeah. the wall there. So it's it really is an interesting story, and it is it is one of those where they kind of said, well, they have these units. What can we do with them? Let's just try something and see how yeah. it goes. And it's not the word. I mean, that's kind of what we did at Dieppe, which turned out to be a much bigger disaster. Right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, sometimes yeah. sometimes you're throwing people into, you know, the unknown just to test things. That's just, that, I mean, that's a scary thing. And that's that's an interesting kind of heroism, uh, you know, it really is. These these guys Absolutely. all volunteered for what they did and it was, uh, was terrifying. You're doing something like this with so many, with so few soldiers. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, the weather might not work work the way you want it to, which I mean, that's a constant. That happens. That's happened throughout all of human mm-hmm. history. Battles and stuff are fought thanks to yeah, weather. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, the... The the ocean doesn't always uh, uh, doesn't yeah. on Tarawa that was you know they they had real problems with the uh, uh, the the nip tide the nip tide and all sorts of things yeah, yeah. Uh, it turns out to be uh, you know there's there's just so much it's unpredictable a very interesting bit though on on uh, on the raid on Macon Island is that the president's son James Roosevelt was involved and yeah. that there was this point where. Uh, suddenly, you know, you, you brought him along in a lot of ways, you know, they got, you know, political points because they had James Roosevelt with them. I think it helped and, and things like that. But then they're like, uh, you know, now we have to get off this island because it would be such a disaster if the president's son was captured. Uh, and, you know, Stalin's son was captured yeah. and Stalin was like, shoot him. I'm not going to do anything for him. He shouldn't have been, they should, he shouldn't have been <laughs> captured alive. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that but was I mean, it certainly could have been uh, very significant if James uh, Roosevelt had been, of course, you know, they also might have just beheaded him like they did the nine guys that they did catch. Uh, but I mean yeah. that, that 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 gives it just an entirely different spin to the story too. That's added, you know, a, a, yeah. a really interesting, you know, wrinkle in what was already a story that ended up having quite a lot of wrinkles. But I mean, it is it, a, it absolutely could have been a very serious story. morale. Yeah, for the for the for the nation. Blow. Yeah, it would have been so. So then you're yeah. like, was it really that good an idea? You know, <laughs> to send him in. And, <laughs> so, and, and, and there have been other times in history, you know, that that uh, that, that that's happened where you know the. the the kings, you know, the, the princes, you know, actually in yeah. combat, and and that means something for them. No, they were often, yeah, they were often expected yeah. to, and and to some extent, though, that 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 went into uh, the modern age too. Yeah. Although uh, they, we were less willing in general, I think, to put them. Well, but uh, you know, uh, 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 Harry was serving in Afghanistan until the press yeah. reported it, and they pulled him out of yeah. there right away because it'd be such a disaster if if something happened. Yeah, that would have been. That there's been. A, there's a story actually. There's a story in the Victorian era where where Wolseley. Brought along a unit, and the queen's one of one of Victoria's sons was in the unit, and 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 he thought it would make her proud. Well, she was actually terrified for the guy, uh, and so he had one of his very best units, guards unit of cavalry, and he had to you know keep hiding him in the back, essentially guarding the yeah you know, guarding the toilets, didn't yeah, want because to risk. He couldn't risk yeah. the, you know the prince getting killed. So I mean, it's uh, it's it's yeah. always been an interesting you know chunk of history, and that was still going on in the Second World War. And you know, FDR actually had he had they had five sons, but one of them died in infancy, but he had four sons served in the war. Yeah. And and uh, yeah, all of them all, served, all of them served which, which in, I thought and, was uh, 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 three of them in, in in combat. I mean, in serious combat. I mean, like where yeah. they definitely could have could have been killed. Uh, and uh, they were uh, they, they were all of them were very gung ho to be honest. I mean, they were they were. I, I think their their father was trying to intervene as he could to keep them in safe places, and they absolutely refused. Yeah, yeah that's uh, that's that's one of the problems that I think a lot of uh, fathers have had with with young sons is that. 
uh, the the young sons want to be in more danger than maybe yeah. the fathers. So I was like, your mother's never going to forgive me. Uh, well, I mean, you know, Lincoln's Lincoln's yeah. son came back from from law school yeah. and said, I want to serve, and they had had they had lost so many children. Uh, and uh, and but Lincoln yeah. finally just couldn't say no, but he did give him a position that would be you know relatively safe and and uh, and you know Robert Todd Lincoln ended up doing enough a lot of things in life uh, that you know I, I would imagine that if he you know if he had chosen he might have been in the middle of combat there and and that that yeah. would have been different. Well, and that was of course uh, Teddy Roosevelt who I mean that man. Teddy would have Teddy would have uh, sailed off to World War One. Yeah, he, and he was to. really much too much too old. He wanted to, to raise to a force, really... and he wanted to go off to World War One. Yeah, and that's you know his his kids in the Second World War. An interesting story too. And I think we'll, I think you know eventually I've yeah. talked about doing an episode. Teddy Roosevelt General was really interesting. Uh, Junior was really interesting. Yeah. But and the thing about you know most of them is that most of them really didn't have to serve. Most of them probably could have avoided yeah. service for a number of different reasons. They were you know and uh, yeah. uh, they, you know, they simply refused. At least uh, well. One of Teddy's one of Teddy's sons died. War. He was a he was a pilot and got shot down. Um, uh, and then and then another one of them was. Well, well, uh, I mean, he was str- all the way in combat, front yeah, line yeah, stuff. Well, Teddy Roosevelt's son, Teddy Roosevelt General Junior, was the highest ranking officer to land at D Day. But he was yeah, he right? he, he was actually the... was in worse health than he had told the army. You know, he'd served in the First World War, uh, and he was promoted uh, uh, up to major general, I think, and. Uh, uh, and as they they went to tell him of the promotion, he had died of a heart attack in the night. Uh, but another one of Roosevelt's son committed suicide. He was serving in Alaska, and, and uh, so I mean, it's, the stories. I mean, the Roosevelt family is very interesting, uh, and uh, and certainly the the service of FDR's kids is interesting. James is probably the most famous yeah. of them, uh, but they also uh, yeah, I I know them less well than I. Than I, I, know I think I mean there there was actually a lot of interesting things about him, but uh, I think his name is Elliot. I think is the second son. Uh, uh, ended up. I mean, he he was four F. He didn't have to serve. He, he kept you know seeking you know permission to serve. And he was because he was a civilian pilot. And he ended up uh, being a, uh, an innovator in uh, uh, reconnaissance aircraft tactics, huh. uh, and uh, that actually played a significant role in the war. So I mean, they're all interesting stories. But it certainly adds something here when you're talking something is, is incredibly dangerous. Is inserting yeah. troops behind enemy lines with very little support just to see what happens. Uh, and uh, and one of the ones that you <laughs> yeah, shove. Yeah. In there, President's son. That's uh, that's that. I mean, that was that was an interesting, bold choice, you know. But I mean, who was going to tell him no? Yeah, well, and I'm sure. I mean, I I doubt that that's the kind of the kind of assignments that James went in unwillingly. I'm sure absolutely that was the assignment he wanted. He (laughs) picked it, and I think he would. They'd had to nail his feet down. Yeah, he he was almost. I mean, he even was at at least at some point under fire from. yeah, this, they were well, and it was it was they were it was a, it was a perilous thing, yeah. and it's it's I mean, interesting they, they to look at it fire, yeah. how. Yeah, there there was. It's not just, but I, I mean, it's it's possible that you know he could have been killed there or easily captured. Certainly, uh, there's a there's a real moment there where whether or not you know it, it's not clear whether he offered to surrender the unit, uh, but would have been difficult because I mean he would have known that surrendering yes. the unit would, did um, not it was necessarily different. protect. Uh, well, you know. Certainly, but uh, surrendering the unit means something different when one of the people you're surrendering is the president's son. Yeah, but certainly in retrospect, so I, I don't know because of the men that you know who's, who were left behind, whose who's raft of returned and left up behind, yeah. uh, surrendering the unit would have would have been a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 difficult to know, but it, but it, even the idea that he might have kind of shows how how uh, close that came to being. Uh, 
a greater disaster than it was. And ultimately, it was it was a morale victory. The, the United yeah. States was was happy with. Uh, we didn't necessarily. I mean, we were able to. I mean, but... I, but I mean, we didn't we didn't keep trying to do that. I mean, I, I think. Uh, I mean, when you talk about whether I mean, it means a lot. It means a lot to the to the people that participated in the raid. Was this a success? Was yeah. this a failure? Uh, and certainly, at the time, we had every reason to present it as a success. Uh, uh, the the movie, it was a much bigger success in the movie than it was in in real life. But if you really looked at the end, if the question of major success and failure is, is not, you know, what did they accomplish when they're there? But uh, I mean, would we risk this again? Um, we didn't. That's not how we use the Raiders yeah. again. And you know that I, That's that true. idea. You know, this it just turned out there were so many variables involved that we knew we were sending troops into a really, you know, desperate situation. But I mean, we um, to some we still do special operations things like that, and yeah. we still insert people. You know, where they're behind, and it's, sometimes that goes. There were some stories in Afghanistan, and Iraq, where that went wrong, and people died, and, and uh, you're just you're taking yeah. a significant risk. But I mean, you cannot question yeah, the heroism of the people that volunteered for the Marine Raiders. I mean, you can't, those are those are all people that not, were yeah. uh, that were willing to go above and beyond and be willing to put into very dangerous situations. Man, I wouldn't even want to get in the rubber raft. Uh, that scared yeah, me. Yeah, I, more I than can't. The, I honestly shooting. can't imagine, uh, especially when they were in in rough seas yeah. and <laughs> willing to willing to <laughs> do that. <laughs> Ten person rubber raft in high surf in the middle of the night, man. That's uh. That's asking that's, a lot, that, and that's that, just that so that you can someone sure get shot at. Yeah, yeah, right. That's the that's just the beginning of the part where you're actually going into into you know, I further I crazy danger. enough to get on the submarine. It's even crazier to get off, <laughs> right? These are people, who, and these are people who were not trained to be well, on submarines. They that was had... that was part of it too. That they were physically. Uh, it was. Uh, it turned out that you know, they weren't necessarily in top physical condition when they got there because there's there's uh, there's some stress to the body that goes on. You know, being on the submarine and. I, I mean, they're they're cramped places in the best of times. I can't. I just can't even. And that's even if you know you've got the as as I'm sure these men were incredibly fit, incredibly healthy folks. Uh, there's a limit to human yeah. endurance. Well, and, when you and, super and, train like that and stuff like that, then you are used to physical activity. You're used to certain calories yeah. and you know huge amounts of you know when you're you bring a lot. Of, and so I mean, in some ways, you can break down you know fairly quickly. Yeah. Uh, and if you're not used to you know being at sea, I can't imagine being under in the submarine. Whew. Yeah, those are. It's, yeah, we'll so you hear those on. stories of the submarine corps. I mean, general, generally, I do. You get it's pretty stanky. That's pretty much what they'll tell you. Yeah. Yeah, I can't. Uh, well, we've spent some time in uh, not in a submarine. I haven't, but we we were inside the USS Texas, mm -hmm. uh, which was the World War One era. Uh, ship and it's it's cramped yeah. and i mean you know the texas doesn't have the limitations oh my gosh, on it they would have had ice cream yeah right? so i mean but you know the and sometimes you know weeks to see at a time yeah the submarine stories are always yeah. quite interesting too so so i mean everybody uh you know everybody took their risk in war that these uh, uh but i mean it meant some of these raiders had to, they had to go there in the summer and they hadn't planned for what that would mean to them physically to get there in the submarine and of course they planned that it would be this perfectly calm sea they'd all get up on the deck of the submarine they blow up their rafts they'd all sit in the rafts comfortably and the submarine would submerge under them and it turns out you know you're on this pitching deck in the middle of the night <laughs> trying to climb down the side of a sub submarine it's not really built for that to get a raft yeah i mean it was it was it was going Crazy. wrong to the start so it, i mean you can't certainly say that they accomplished an awful lot uh uh, but I mean, in a, in a, in a, you know, ten guys end up on the wrong side of the island, and they manage to find their way back to everybody else, and cause <laughs> yeah, cause right, quite a lot of havoc the... on their way. And, yeah, it's it's uh, if if anything else, it is certainly a great story uh, about people who really uh, uh, were trying something uh, and uh, and who were yeah. you know certainly heroic. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. 
We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.